This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You know it's coming. Are you prepared? Or are you afraid? You never know when it will come or how bad it will be. But one thing is for certain, on this day, you cannot trust anything you see. It's April Fools! This week, we're going to explore one of humanity's greatest traditions, the prank. We'll learn how this act of deception and humor has become ingrained in our culture and how companies utilize this day to make their brand successful. We'll also explore why April Fools really is a human experience and not one to be left to computers. And in our SAS class, we're going to find out if our gullibility to a prank really is age-related. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to show you how science really is needed for a good April Fool's prank. And that's no joke. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Imagine a world where you woke up, performed daily chores, partook in communal gatherings, said your prayers to whatever deities you worshipped, and went to bed. A peaceful world without the pressures of modern life. No social media, no demands from school or work, and the concept of politics would be left to those sitting in senates and other congresses. This utopia would be perfect, right? Now, let's be honest. It would all be a bit boring. Our brains need stimulation from the outside world. We need excitement, romance, and yes, even a good laugh. We know these experiences help to stabilize the levels of the happiness neurochemicals. Endocannabinoids, dopamine, oxytocin, and gamma-aminobutyric acid, better known as GABA. If we don't give these a lift, we tend to fall into an unhealthy state in which our lives become no different than drones, and depression can set in. If you take a look back in time, you'll find that there's one week in the year that happens to be denoted as the one for having fun. It's the last week of March. The ancient Romans called it Hilaria, in honor of Sibeli, the mother of the gods. The Hindu people called it Holi, the festival of colors. Before we change to our modern Gregorian calendar, this was New Year's. No matter where you were in the world, it was a chance to get out of the drab and into the fab. April Fool's Day, sometimes known as All Fool's Day, is one of the most lighthearted days of the year, even though its origins are uncertain. Some see it as a celebration related to the turn of the seasons, while others believe it stems from the adoption of a new calendar. What we can agree on is that April Fool's Day has grown up quite a bit since those early days. As soon as it arrives, we're on the lookout for pranks 
and enjoy the ones that are done best. While we may all experience them in our personal lives, companies have also jumped on board to have a little fun with their customers and attract new ones. Thanks to the internet, the reach of these pranks has increased. Now, major international brands have marketing campaigns in the hopes of turning a prank into commercial success. We even see charts and lists of the best April Fool's campaigns every year. As you might expect, figuring out how to make a successful April Fool's prank is now big business and purely scientific in nature. Our first guest is someone who understands how to make an April Fool's prank work on the web. His name is Tom Lemoncelli, and he is an information technology consultant. He's published several books on time management and how to run an information technology department, as well as web team. He works at stackoverflow.com as the manager of the site reliability engineering team. So from your experience, why is April Fool's such a popular day for companies and for their campaigns? Companies are always looking for ways of attracting viewers or you know, eyeballs um, to their website. And it's a great opportunity to um, do something that could go viral. Um, I think uh, the reason so many companies do it now is that in the past, uh, when one or two companies were doing it, it was very special and uh, did get a lot of viral attraction. Now so many companies do it. I'm not sure if it's as much of a, a exciting thing. What would make a good prank these days? I think it's important for a prank to be topical and absurdist. So topical means you know, relate it to something that's happening in the news. If you do a great prank that's related to Madonna, that's decades old and it's not going to be as exciting as if you could do something that touches on uh, a, a recent current event. Um, and also, it needs to be absurdist. Um, the, the spark that makes a prank really good is when you laugh at the joke and then you realize, oh, that is so absurd that it actually shows a, a real truth. For example, uh, stackoverflow.com, where I work, a couple years ago, they did a, a prank uh, called Dance Dance Revolution. At the time, a lot of websites were adding this two-factor authentication to increase the security of the website, but it also has the downside of being um, – it, it's less convenient. So we made this prank where we claimed that uh, when you log in, you didn't – you weren't going to have to just enter your username and password. You were also going to have to turn on your video camera and dance certain steps like dance, dance revolution. And um, that was topical because it related to this two factor authentication. A lot of people were dealing with, and it was absurdist. It was, re it was absurd, but it was revealing this underlying truth that it's in computer security. There's always a trade-off between uh, security and convenience. April fool's pranks have been a part of the internet uh, for a long time. Now, these web-based pranks are only 15, 20 years old, at least the, the popular ones. But the organization, the standards body that uh, defines how the internet works is called IETF, and they've been around for decades. And in fact, their first April Fool's prank was in 1978. 
So there's a lot of inside baseball, if you will, when it comes to putting together any kind of April Fool's prank. From a web perspective, how would that be different than, say, one that you're trying to do at home or at school or at, or at work? One of the problems with April Fool's pranks on a website is it's going to be very corporate. Um, so you have to consider that your audience is not just the employees of the company, it's uh, all of your users and people who haven't even heard of your website, especially if it goes viral, people are going to discover you through this. So you want the prank to um, obviously not be offensive, um, which is sometimes difficult to judge. And um, it has to make sense to people that aren't, uh, aren't typical users. So I've seen a number of pranks that were um, hilarious if you knew this inside joke related to the website, but that's not a lot of people. So it was funny to the employees that made it, but not so funny to the customers of the website. Pranks can also backfire. For example, a couple years ago, Google Gmail did a prank called Drop the Mic, where they emulated the kind of angry drop the mic thing uh, in email, which was pretty funny, except to just try it out, it made the, your friends look like you were angry at them. And that backfired. They actually disabled this prank uh, just a, a couple hours in when they found that it was uh, causing more trouble than, than laughs. Speaking of being effective, your day job is helping information technology teams be productive. And that means time management, being prepared. And I imagine when it comes to doing something like an April Fool's joke, being rehearsed. Excellent point. In fact, I'm surprised at how underappreciated rehearsals are. This is, this is actually one of the reasons that I feel that music and art education is so important in early education, because it teaches you the value of rehearsal. Uh, I've, met, <clears throat> I've met parents that talk about like music and art education is not being valuable because they say, oh, you know, my son or daughter isn't going to grow up to be a, a poet or an artist, but they are going to get a job where they present information to people, they have to communicate and all of that is, all of that comes down to rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing. In IT, you don't think of launching a new feature as um, something you need to rehearse. But actually, in the IT world, the, the big thing nowadays is talking about this concept called DevOps, where you do actually, uh, instead of one large uh, project, you break it down into smaller projects so that... Um, in each iteration, you get better and better at it. And then by the time the, um, you do launch the system, uh, you've gotten a lot of feedback, you've, you've learned from past mistakes. It's really all about learning. Another way to look at it is everything in IT is a process and you have to learn along the way. And the more you learn, the faster you can move. Pulling off a prank or even just a joke is hard work. You need to incorporate a variety of different factors that have nothing to do with your intent. This compilation is known as the general theory of verbal humor. In order to meet all the requirements, you must have the following components. Script opposition, suggesting that what you are saying is not necessarily to be taken seriously. Sarcasm tends to fit in nicely here. 
Logical mechanism ensures the story might actually be possible, even if it seems absurd. Think about all those animals that have walked into a bar. Situation in which the person can appreciate the joke or prank environment. This is especially important when it comes to different cultures. Knowledge of the target, including their background, experience, and how touchy they may be. Narrative strategy is the flow that makes the listener follow you to the end. This could be something simple from a knock-knock joke to a complicated story that takes minutes before you get to the punchline. And language. Everything has to be said the right way at exactly the right time. Considering how much is needed to make a joke or prank work, it should not come as a surprise that many of the best comedians and pranksters out there have a testing circle. Comedians test with smaller audiences or with fellow comedians to perfect the set. Comedy writers have the writer's room. As for science podcast hosts, well, they try out their ideas on family, friends, and their producers. Usually with mixed results. But what about computers? They've been helping us for decades. And with the advent of artificial intelligence, it would make sense that we could throw our idea into a program or app and be told whether we're funny or not. According to our next guest, you might not want to hold your breath. Her name is Julia Reyes, and she is an associate professor in the Polytechnic Institute at Purdue University. Her research focuses on natural language processing and how computers may be able to understand the language we speak just as well as it understands binary code. Based on her decade of research, however, it seems that artificial intelligence is not the key to an automated joke tester. Why can't artificial intelligence laugh at a joke? Well, interestingly enough, it can laugh. It just doesn't know that it's a joke. So what you're actually asking is, Will it be able to recognize a joke? And how should it recognize a joke? The laughter component is a little bit straightforward, although not quite solved. Um, but there is a, a research um, funded by European Union. It's a huge project that uh, was started probably somewhere 2011 or so. And it was on the signs of laughter. And part of it was um, how do you make a computer laugh in a uh, way that is uh, accessible to a human being and that a human would appreciate. So that the laughing component is already there. It's the recognizing of a joke and recognizing of when a computer should laugh at something in a way that is acceptable socially as well as culturally that is a little bit more difficult. That seems so weird to me because artificial intelligence is supposed to be based on the concept of neural networks. But it seems like there is a difference between how a neural network interprets and let's just say the general theory of verbal humor and how humans interpret. What to you, based on your research, has been the difference? Let us talk a little bit about um, humor first, and then we'll go back to the artificial neural networks. When you are reading a joke, you need to understand all of the situations that are described in joke. You need to have the knowledge of the world that is then applicable to whatever it is that the joke describes. 
you then have to have ability to make inferences about these situations. And you need to see incongruity in the text, if it is in the text or in anything else um, that um, the joke is about that uh, um, you're looking at. Neural networks are not typically concentrated on all of these inferences. Um, they are there to get some patterns and accomplish certain tasks. And unless you are making all of the inferences uh, programmed or detectable by neural networks, you won't be very successful in understanding how humor works. But we know that artificial intelligence learns from data. Do you think then maybe just all we need to do is upload all the jokes ever told into one big database and then let the AI identify incongruencies so it can get the joke? Or am I missing something from this equation? Well, um, that depends what you're after. Uh, obviously, getting all of the jokes and putting them into some sort of neural networks may accomplish the trick. But what do you want your neural network to learn? Um, um. That's the first question. The second question is we need to keep in mind that AI learns well about something that can be well described or has definite, definitive boundaries. The minute you have an open-ended scenario, you're dealing with a much, much more challenging tasks, and we are not quite sure how um, a computer will react to it. There are too many scenarios to consider. What is right? What is wrong? How do you teach it? So that, that is going to be considerably more difficult. Also remember that within a joke, that joke may be funny or not funny, depending on the timeline, depending on the situation that you are in. It may be appropriate now. It may not be appropriate tomorrow. So how are you going to incorporate into your neural network, if you, that's what you're using to recognize um, humor, um, that it can be relevant today but not tomorrow, um, that you can tell it to a person that shares your point of view, for example, but it may be offensive to somebody else. It's SAS class time, and today we're going to explore the psychology behind our susceptibility to a joke or prank. It all comes down to our ability to detect deception. Our guest teacher is Michelle Eskrit Keck, and she is the professor and chair of the Department of Psychology at Mount St. Vincent University. Her research suggests that when it comes to our ability to detect deception, sometimes the innocence of a child might be all you need. Are children better lie detectors than adults? Well, one thing you need to keep in mind when you're looking at lie detection is that people in general tend to be pretty bad at it. Very rarely is someone good at it. There are the odd individuals, but most people in general are usually about chance in most research studies, or they're just slightly above chance. So in general, people are bad lie detectors. And that is largely in part because when we communicate, we have a reason for communicating, and it's usually very collaborative, very cooperative. If you are um, lying to one another, you're not giving uh, truthful information, that of course would fall apart. It's not cooperative if you <laughs> provide deceitful information. We tend to display a truth bias. We tend to believe people. Um, so when you are looking at lie detection research, it's important not only to look at whether or not someone is accurate at detecting lies, but when they're making a mistake, why? Is it they're just at chance or are they making particular types of errors? And the most common type of error to make um, is assuming that people are telling the truth. 
Now, that applies to both adults and kids. We both, they both groups tend to think that people are telling the truth most of the time. That's the type of uh, mistake they tend to make. Your ability to tell a lie will depend a lot on the context. So in one study I did, I was interested in kids' and adults' ability to tell or to detect pro-social lies. So these are lies to spare somebody else's feelings. So someone gives you a gift and you tell them you love it, even though you do not. Um, and I wanted to know whether or not kids and adults could tell when someone was being lying in this case. Um, and what I found was that adults and kids were, had very similar performance, but what was really interesting is that the kids were not showing the usual truth bias um, when it came to detecting lies that the adults were showing, t- telling. Um, they showed a, a truth bias for most kids. The youngest kids, they, they did have a, a, a lie bias as well. Um, but with kids, if they were going to make a mistake, they were more likely to believe other kids. But when it came to the adults, they were more likely to be suspicious of what adults were saying. <laughs> um, so they were more likely to assume the adults were lying. And that might very well have to do, I think, with the types of lies that were being told, because what people were talking about was a gift and whether or not they liked the gift. And then the other thing was they were judging children's um, artwork. <laughs> so apparently kids are somewhat more suspicious <laughs> when people are trying to tell them their artwork is beautiful. <laughs> One of the ways that we communicate is through motion so that we can emphasize what we're saying. Do you think that perhaps nonverbal distractions that we see face-to-face versus what we see online or, or through tweets and, and, and other things, which is words, can play a role in helping to improve our ability to deceive? What your question kind of reminds me of is a magician using sleight of hand to to do a trick. And I wouldn't have first thought of that as being deception because they sort of have our permission to do that. In fact, we'd be kind of disappointed if they didn't. <laughs> but I do still think it's deceptive because they are trying to hide what they're doing, fool us. So they're very good at that. They're using gesture to, to make us not notice something and pay attention over here instead. And that is how they fool us. To lie face to face, you do have to do a little bit of that anyways if you're going to be successful. So if I don't like a gift that you just gave me, and but I tell you it's wonderful, I do have to match my body language to what I'm saying. I can't show my disappointment or my frustration or any other negative emotion I might experience when I open it. I have to look like I'm genuinely happy by the gift. So you do have to have that matching of your verbal and nonverbal. Um, what you're suggesting, though, is you could take it a little bit further, like a magician does, and sort of, you know, pay attention over here while this is happening over there. Um, and Research looking at gesture in general during communication finds that yet we do gesture um, when we communicate, some cultures more so than others, and we often will match what we're gesturing to what we say, but what we can also do, and we frequently do, is we'll use gesture to extend what we say. So, for example, I can say, oh, it's over there, and I can point. To, to what I mean by over there. And the pointing sort of adds to what I've just said. When we use gesture to sort of extend, add, elaborate on what is being said, it uh, facilitates a whole lot more with what's being said. So, for example, in using 
gesture um, to uh, to enhance what is being said in the math classroom, it actually will increase children's understanding of mathematical concepts. So they're much more likely to follow what's getting said. If you translate that into a deception situation, then um, what you could see is if you use gesture to add on to whatever you are verbally saying, it would make it much more convincing. For example, you could, again, accuse me of something and I deny it. Um, but if I look, turn and look at somebody else, implying that maybe you should ask that person over there um, whether or not they did it, um, that could uh, make it more believable that I didn't do it. Um, the one thing about gesture is we tend not to be so aware of it as we are with the words. We don't necessarily, we're not necessarily consciously aware that it's influencing our interpretation, which would make it all the more, uh, have a more, much more subtle uh, effect. And you're less likely than to use that as judging whether or not you should actually trust this person. With all this in mind, if someone wanted to be sure that their joke, prank, or April Fool's campaign was a success, no matter who the audience might be, what would you tell them to do, and perhaps more importantly, what they shouldn't do? One thing to keep in mind is going back to the importance of context. So the, the disadvantage of April Fool's for trying to pull a prank is that truth bias is not going to be nearly as strong because people might be more suspicious on April Fool's Day than another. I suppose if you thought you could get away with it, doing it on the day before or after April Fool's probably worked best. But <laughs> if you're going to go with tradition, um, I would try to do it when the, when the person is least likely to be thinking about it's April Fool's Day. Um, so maybe first thing in the morning before they remember, oh yeah, it's April Fool's. Again, you don't want, science is saying that a joke will work best when a person's not suspicious. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> the uh, second thing to consider is that people go on autopilot remarkably a lot during the day. If, if it's a routine everyday day, we often are not paying close attention to our surroundings. We take in so much information about the world at any one point in time, we can't possibly process it all. So what the brain does is it learns to predict what's likely to be going on and what should be novel and we should pay attention to. And we can then sometimes be oblivious to things that are going on in the environment if we're not expecting it. The more you can make it part of the everyday, part of the routine, the better chance you have of getting someone to even notice that something might be suspicious. So, for example, if your partner has uh, toast and jam every morning for breakfast, messing with the jar of jam in some way is more likely to be successful than if they don't. And you saying, hey, do you want some toast? And here, use this jam for breakfast. It's more likely to arouse suspicion, draw their attention. You don't want to draw your atten their attention to whatever it is that you are trying to do for the prank. And that sort of leads into the, the last point, which is it does take a lot of mental resources to detect a lie or a prank. And then that's why you want to avoid attention. You don't want the mental resources being drawn to, to, uh, to bear on whatever it is you're doing until you're ready to spring the joke. If the person is suspicious, you can't put it as part of the routine. You want to try to get them when they are least likely to be able to think about what you're doing. So when they're likely to be distracted, for example. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it'll help you have a great April Fool's Day, even if you are the one being pranked. For a curious cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support has been overwhelming. 
and we want to show our gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email to thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. While you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week, and as always, make sure to show them some sass. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.